First on film and entertainment, my name's Alex First, joined today by Peter Krauss. Good morning, sir. Good morning, Dave. Good morning, Alex. And Dave Griffiths, how are you doing? I'm going well. Good morning, Peter. Good morning, Alex. Now, it has been a tumultuous week with the Queen passing, and what a remarkable human being. We are not going to see the likes of her again. The commitment that she had to the task that she had been given was remarkable from the very beginning. And I heard a recording when she was 14 years of age on the BBC, and that said it all to me. She was empathetic. She cared about the world. She cared about people. And she always conducted herself with the utmost dignity. And I I, I don't know anybody who has spoken other than in glowing terms about her, not just because she's passed, but because of the service that she has had from a very tender age. Would you both agree? Oh, definitely, yes. Yeah, yeah. definitely. She's She's been like a grandmother she uh, has. to like multiple generations now. It's It feels weird n- knowing that she's not there, but um, just watching some of the footage from the last... 24 hours and of course that amazing documentary that came out earlier this year and yeah I've had a newfound love for her with the with those docos that I've watched over the past few years because we've seen a completely different side to the queen that we grew up knowing well I think that the other thing about her is her sense of humor and you think about the Paddington photograph and the imagery around the 70th celebrations, etc. All of that was, or what was it called? The, what, what jubilee was it? I, I'm, diamond, no, was it the 70th? Is that diamond or it's something else? Okay. You know, the celebrations earlier this year in the UK? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, anyway, th- th- that, that was fabulous. And I suppose, in a sense, it's happened very, very quickly because, of course, the, the love of her life, Prince Philip passed away only a year ago. And then you had the situation where you had these four days of celebrations and she wasn't able to attend all the events. And her commitment to the Commonwealth, even a couple of days before she passed away, there she is. What was was it the 15th or the 16th? I can't remember, Prime Minister that she'd she'd seen, you know, and basically uh, anointed, if you like, because that's the requirement. Uh, that that commitment to the very end, and now, of course, King Charles has reinforced that he will do the same. And it's it's rather interesting that, you know, he's 73 years of age, so he's the oldest monarch to have taken the reins in the UK. So, uh, and, and you can just imagine the outpouring of emotion at the funeral when it's going to be very public and the, the, the heads of state, in the countries around the world will we'll be watching very, very closely. And then, of course, we haven't in our lifetime seen somebody like King Charles be, you know, go through all of the, the pomp and ceremony associated with being anointed in that role. So there's going to be a lot to look forward to. I, I wonder, you know, it's, it's, one, it's one of those interesting times because there, there, was, some, there was some awkwardness I, I felt when the announcement of her passing and soon after there was talk about, oh, well, should Australia become a republic, which I thought was highly inappropriate. Uh, It it just didn't go down well at all. And also there was, 
I don't know whether you read, but I think it was out of the United States. There was somebody who who wished her her a, a dreadful death. I, I was horrified by that. Did you read that, either of you? I did, and I read the the two um, senators here in Australia who had anti-royal sentiments in their um, posts, and I just found that really disgusting, to be honest. Yeah, I think that's the right word, Dave. I, you know, it's one of those things that how many people would want to do the job? You know, it's all well and good. It it, it looks wonderful, but gee whiz, it's a um, you've you've got to have a certain character, and I think that her character was unblemished through all of this these years. And you know, you might not like the institution, but you've got to respect the individual. Uh, and she was she was somebody who was super special, and the love for her was cross generational. That's the other thing that really struck me. It wasn't just, if you like, our generation, Peter. There are young, yeah. there are young people who speak about her in glowing terms. Yeah, it, she needed. A, I mean, the scandals involved in in the the monarchy, if you like, over generations, and even what what's happened more recently. How do you hang all of that together and still maintain your dignity? The Queen showed us the way. So it, it's 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 strange. We're going to have to get used to you know coinage. Um, there's going to be the 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 banknotes that we use. All of that's going to be changing over. But it, they've got good life lifelines. The the royal family haven't they? The queen queen mum lasted till like, was it 101? Yeah. And, yes. But but I was surprised at how quickly uh, the end came because. When, when we sort of first heard that she wasn't able to fulfil her duties and, and then, unfortunately, she declined rather rather swiftly. You know, it was only a matter of months, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. again, the, the processes involved in all of this so finely worked out in terms of what goes on and uh, what, what commemoration there will be and how it's done. So, you know, a lot of clearly th this has been worked out long before the event and I, I suppose that the the I feel privileged that we lived in this generation that allowed us to have somebody like the Queen, if you like, reigning reigning over us. I thought thought um, what she visited Australia, I think, sixteen times, didn't she? She's yeah. I went I went to two of those. I went when she was here in nineteen eighty eight, and then just by chance, my wife actually reminded me yesterday. Just by chance, I was walking past on the day that she caught the tram here in Melbourne to mm -hmm. go to um, the governor's house. And my wife said, you rang me like an excited schoolboy saying, I just saw the queen. I saw the queen. Like my wife said it was one of the times when she's ever heard me get that excited about something. So, wow. yeah. That's very I, – my, my story, I don't know whether I've told you boys this before, but – it wasn't with the Queen, but it was the the princess. It was Diana, Princess of Wales. And I uh, I was covering a royal tour as a journalist. And I was literally, what, probably three feet away from the from, from the princess and I wanted to take a photograph. And my camera failed. Can you believe that? <laughs> oh no! <laughs> I will never forgive myself. Right? I mean, it just. I, I, so yeah. So that that's a story of the past. And we. Uh, one of the other things. One of my prized possessions, uh, which is uh, safely locked away, I might add, is a. I've got a. Um, a, a wedding. Uh, well, not a wedding photo. It was a 
you know, they, the Queen and uh, the Prince issue Christmas cards. And yep. uh, I have a signed Christmas card from, from the pair of them. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it's sort of it, – it's interesting because one of the things that I heard during the week is you can write to your uh, local MP, uh, maybe it's the federal MP, I'm not sure which one, and you can request a photograph of the Queen. I didn't know that you could oh. do that. Mm. Which may be, you know, again, if for, for those people who are interested in keepsakes, uh, there was a caller who, who basically did it on the day and uh, already got a response saying, yes, we'll send you a photograph. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So that may be something for our listeners who might be interested in all of this. So, Vale, and, uh, you know, hopefully glad tidings for, you know, I mean, it's, it, it's, it is a very, very uh, subdued sort of situation where somebody passes who you care so much about and you want the world to stop, but it doesn't. The world just keeps on going at, uh, at a steady pace. But there will be, there will be um, reason to uh, mark the occasion over the next, you know, week or so, and uh, I, I, she, her, her memory will live on in, in all of our lives for the rest of our lives, and that's the way somebody of real, real um, merit should be remembered. Yes, and I, I should mention the fictional representations of the Queen and the royal family. I mean, obviously the Crown, uh, but also uh, I think it's available on ABC iView, a film called Royal Night Out, where... Yes. Uh, uh, where they, uh, uh, Margaret and uh, and Elizabeth, uh, celebrate for one evening the end of World War Two, and that's a really nicely depicted look at uh, at these two young royals. Yes, I remember and seeing last it. Last night, one of the royal historians on TV actually told that story and said that that film actually did happen. A lot of people, when that film mm. came out, thought that it was a complete work of fiction. It actually did happen. Yep. It, really, it really humanizes them, doesn't it? You know that. Yes. Yeah. I, yeah. It was. A, I found it quite a revelation when I saw the movie. I, I, I now I'm pleased you mentioned it, Peter. So once again, what's it called? A Royal Night Out. Terrific. Let's turn to movies and let's start with a film that I I thoroughly enjoyed. It's not going to be everybody's cup of tea, but I I found it deeply affecting, and I actually had tears running down my cheeks on the final scene. Now it's called The Quiet Girl. It's rated M. It's 95 minutes, and we're in rural Ireland in 1981. You've got a nine-year-old by the name of Kate, played by Catherine Clinch. She's one of five children. I was sort of counting them because they that was the only way I could. There seemed to be a lot of them, about to be six, who keeps to herself. She says very little, but she observes a great deal. And there's no love shown to her at home. She's struggling with reading at school. Her father's a layabout, drinks too much, gambles. Money is scarce, and it, it's no family environment to be brought up in. As summer arrives and with the new baby's arrival not far away, Kate is sent to live with, with distant relatives, cousins, actually, on a, on a farm three hours' drive from where she lives. Her father drops her off, but all she has is the clothes on her back because he forgets to take the suitcase that she's packed out of the boot of the car. She's met by a lady called Eblen, played by Carrie Cowley, kind, caring woman, takes Kate under her wing, treats her gently. And at first her husband, Sean, Andrew Bennett, appears to want nothing to do with her. But in time, he gets to greatly appreciate the person that Kate is. This is a house supposedly without secrets, but there is one dark and painful truth that will be exposed. 
So it's an Irish language adaptation of a story, Foster, which was written by Claire Keegan, and it was first published in the New Yorker magazine. It was named Best of the Year by that magazine, and it was later expanded and published as a standalone book in the year 2010. The writer and director, Colm Fairreed, first read Foster in 2018, and that's when he determined he'd adapt it uh, for the screen. So the subject matter, we're talking about neglect, we're talking about grief. I thought it was beautifully, sensitively handled, and it starts with the sort of less is more script and extends to very fine acting, striking cinematography and musical accompaniment. So I found that there was a great deal, magnificent restraint in all that unfolds, Dave. Oh, it's a beautiful film. It's one of the the most beautiful films I think I've seen in a long time. And I thought it was an interesting film because we saw Juniper earlier this year, which was a, a love story basically between a grandson and a grandmother. And this film kind of carries that over with this beautiful relationship between Kate and Sean that develops during the film. I, I, I just was blown away by this movie. It was one of those films where I think I sat there just mesmerized by the entire film. It's such a beautiful film, even though it's such a dark story and such brilliant acting performances. Catherine Clinch, a first time actress, and she is amazing uh, through this film. It's one of those films though, where I wish it did have an answer for the ending, but I still enjoyed the ending that was there as well. Well, I, I mean, you don't get the feel. It, this is a temporary respite is is how I saw it, but I'm not sure whether you saw it the same way. I agree, Catherine Clinch, superb, quiet, as this quiet, neglected girl. Those piercing eyes and that gentle demeanour hits the mark perfectly. And, and she's complimented, I thought, by the four other key figures in the piece. I, I, I long remember the performance of Carrie Cowley as a woman who has so much love to give. And Andrew Bennett really straddles the artful side of his, well, at first standoffish husband. And and you, you can't but but detest Michael Patrick. And he's the he's the father, right? He's the brutish, ever so menacing dad. But that's what the role demands. You know, let's not make the mistake of saying that that's the actor. That that's the actor doing what he what he should be doing very very well. So. I thought that it's a film where patience is rewarded, Peter. Absolutely. It's, it's a, a beautifully observed, subtle coming-of-age story uh, with a sort of darker elements involved. And uh, it's so nice to see the development of this young girl as the film progresses. It's interesting to note this is the first of a series of films that the Irish Film Institute is now commissioning to be uh, to be filmed in the original Irish language. Uh, and that, I, I think, augurs well for some very strong stories um, which have that uh, particular uh, dialect or that particular language involved. Yes, I was very impressed by the film and uh, uh, I, I think the resolution has some positivity to it, uh, but we won't do any spoilers yeah. there. <laughs> Explain to me, what, without giving too much away, what, where, where did you see that? Because it, it was about, obviously, the environment that will be in front of her. That was what, what we're talking about in terms of the ending, and that doesn't give anything away. But where, where did you see positivity? Uh, that you can see her becoming a bit more confident and a bit more 
of her own person as the film progresses. And uh, and it, for me, it tells me that she is now going to um, make a, a good life because she has had this difficult background, but she's also learned other aspects to her life that she can move forward with. Which is interesting because I I don't necessarily agree with that. I, I it, it's kind of like you want to impose that upon the ending. I don't I I, I understand why you'd say that, but I, I I didn't see that. Did you? No. Uh I have my own thoughts on where I think she might have ended up at the end. Um, and I I know my thoughts are are very different to others, but. Uh, yeah, I, I I thought it was a happy ending, but it was one of those films where I actually did want to know what the screenwriter, director wanted for their character at the end. It's I, I just read another screenwriting book recently and they were talking about the fact that in a lot of modern day films, it feels like screenwriters take the easy way out where they're like, I'll just let the audience make up their mind because they've been too scared to fall on a side when it comes to the end because they don't want to disappoint their audience. But this book was saying that sometimes that's a downfall in cinema, where as an audience, you want the screenwriter to say, this is what happened in the end. That's interesting. You and I have discussed this before, Dave. I, I'm generally not unhappy with putting my own take on something at the end. I'm not saying, and the vast majority of films do close out the narrative unless there's a sequel, and we'll be talking about one of those shortly. But notwithstanding that, uh, where we're asked to do some heavy lifting, no, that's all right. That's okay. It, it, it sparks discussion, and that's not a bad thing, I, I don't think, either. Peter, yeah. your view? Your view on uh, endings? I actually like a, a film, uh, a narrative, that leaves some gaps for the audience to uh, to contribute their own understanding of what will happen in the in the storyline or in the narrative. Um, I think John Flowers and others have said that films that have gaps in them make the audience want to work at it, discuss it, and and talk about where uh, the characters could possibly be going rather than being told everything by the end of the film. Exactly. So yeah. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't think it's appropriate for the vast majority of films. I, I, I fully accept that. But I, I think especially films that do sort of work cerebrally, shall we use that term, uh, I, I think it's appropriate. And it's interesting that the quiet girl, the pacing of it is just perfect. It's not, as I said at the outset, it's not going to be for everybody. This is an independent sort of movie. Uh, the language is difficult at times, right? Because and I know, Dave, you don't have issues with it, but I was I was struggling to understand what Michael Patrick was saying, right, the father uh, on occasions. The, the sort of Irish accent uh, doesn't sit... Easily, uh, I, I love the Irish. Don't get me wrong, but but I struggle to understand what what they're saying from time to time. And I know you've told me in the past that uh, your heritage means that you do have a greater sense of understanding. There, did you understand every word that he was saying? Yeah, not a problem. Yeah, and Peter, I I did too. Actually, I must be more attuned, perhaps, to accents. So uh, yeah, yeah, no, it's yeah. fine. I, I think it's my shortcoming. There you go. Or one, one of my many shortcomings. Let's get some scores. Uh, the Quiet Girl, Peter. Uh, a really good film, 8 out of 10. Yeah, and it's rated M, runs for 95 minutes. And Dave? I'm giving it 9 out of 10. I really, really loved it. 
And I'm giving it eight and a half. So, yeah, we're all in the same territory, which is terrific. Let's go to a, a movie that we didn't talk about last week. It's been uh, open now for a week and a few days, and it's called True Things. And it's one that I wanted to talk about. Slice of life drama. And it focuses on a woman in her early 30s in a job she does not like. She's looking to find someone that she can settle down with. Her name is Kate Perkin, played by Ruth Wilson. She works as an employment benefits officer in the English coastal town of Ramsgate. In fact, I, I must admit, I liked some of the, um, the uh, settings. I thought they were pretty evocative. Uh, she's tardy. She often takes sick days. She doesn't, and, and that doesn't go unnoticed by her, her bosses and, and her immediate superior says that she's on her last chance. A fellow employer and a mother called Alison, played by Hayley Squires, who basically got Kate Perkin the job in the first place, only wants the best for her and is on the lookout for eligible men for her to date. Unexpectedly, Kate warms to the flirtations of one male claimant at the Employment Benefits Office. He's known only as Blonde because he's got bleach blonde hair, uh, played by Tom Burke. And th this gentleman's just come out of prison. Hasn't spent a long time there, but, but has been in jail. Now, even though regulations prevent the fraternisation, she meets up with Blonde after work and in no time they're having sex. She's really into him. He becomes priority number one. Everything else sort of falls by the wayside. But he's flighty. He's not willing to commit and... Basically, in terms of any sense of other than looking after himself, it just doesn't exist. So he he really treats her as his plaything and really exploits the situation that he finds himself in. Kate really can't understand why he treats her the way that he does, but she perseveres. And she, in so doing, ostracises those who are only after the best for her, including her parents and the friend I spoke about who got her the job, Alison. And in the process, Kate's life spirals more out of control than it was to begin with. And all seems lost until she joins Blonde on a trip to Spain for his sister's wedding. This movie, True Things, is based on a book by Deborah K. Davies, co-written with Molly Davies by director Harry Woodliffe. I, I must admit, I, I really appreciated Ruth Wilson, Ruth Wilson's performance as Kate Perkin. I thought she did a marvellous job inhabiting the character and as the centrepiece of the action, she really exhibits the range of emotions that are consistent with her character. And I, I was thinking about this, this whole thing. You've got somebody who's hopeful and excitable but somebody who's also despondent and despairing. So th there's this real arc that she, her character goes through. She's relatable as a person on the edge whose life is going nowhere fast and the wheels have really fallen off. And I thought, I mean, the, the, if you like, the, um, the selfishness of the male character was really well captured by Tom Burke. He's the sort of villain of the piece and uh, thoroughly, I mean, he, tr he's, he tries to feign likability but uh, he, he, he gets under your skin pretty damn quickly, and that's a sure sign that true things is working, Dave. 
Yeah, definitely. I I was surprised by some of the online hatred for this film because really, a lot of people have, yeah, a lot of people have criticised this film, saying that it just shows a toxic relationship. But I think people can learn from this film. I mean, we've all had that friend who's been dating someone that we disagree with or we can see them being bad for them in their lives. And that's how I viewed this film. I mean, yeah, Kate is dating a piece of human trash. That's really the way, the only way I can describe him as a character. Um, but it's one of those films where you watch it and you feel for her. And to me, that's a sign of a good screenplay is that because I have that emotion of, man, you need to get out of this relationship, Kate. Like, you want to shake her and say, get out of this relationship. But you also want to see where it's going to end up because as we know through everyday life, these relationships have a habit of ending really, really badly. So I sat there the entire time just wanting to see where this relationship was going to end up. But I thought Tom Burke was absolutely fantastic in this film. And this is an actor who's done a lot of comedy in the past so this was a real turnaround for him, and I found it a really uh, interesting film that I, I quite enjoyed watching. Well, it's funny you talk about it in these terms because we were just talking about the the dad in the the movie that we spoke about previously. And again, it's hard the, the idea that you really you, you want to boo the the villain. Surely that means that they're doing what they're paid to do, and they're doing it very very well. Exactly, they're, they're not cardboard cutouts, and. Certainly, Tom Burke is not. He he's somebody who he's slimy, he's detestable, he's dishonest. All of those characteristics. He he managed his body movements, the way he conducts himself. It's a lot more to acting than just delivering lines. And and that that's what I really appreciated about Tom Burke. But I've got to say that that the heavy, the really heavy lifting was done by by Ruth Wilson. She did a wonderful job, didn't she, Peter? Absolutely, she did. Uh, I mean, we've seen a number of films uh, which look at male obsession in terms of relationship uh, and psychological intensity uh, from the male point of view. So it's interesting to see this from the female point of view and to look at her psychological obsession and her dependency on a man who may or may not really be suitable for her at all. And to, for her to go through this, it's almost like a drug dependency or whatever, that she has this uh, dependency on this man to lead her out of her existence uh, and she can't recognise and has very little self-awareness in terms of finding her own way out of that um, uh, that problematic sort of situation. Um, so uh, I like the way um, uh, the story develops, the way that she is so obsessed and whether there is any possible hope for her in terms of finding some sort of psychological equilibrium and uh, and so yes, I, I was quite impressed by the film, and the acting was was very good indeed. I felt it became a little bit too one note for my liking, and I would have liked a little bit more light and shade um, in terms of other characters and story development. But well, nevertheless, I liked the film. Let me just interrupt you at that point, Peter. To me, the 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 representation of men in this movie is significant because. Even when you've got a decent bloke and she reacts in a way that he hadn't expected, he suddenly turns. And you know what I'm talking about, don't you? And, I, and I'm referencing that. And here, here we've got a bloke who supposedly presents as, as decent and, and honourable 
And again, I would argue that the treatment that she receives from him is certainly less than appropriate. That's true. But don't forget, we all have masks. We all present in particular ways. And when things get a little bit more difficult or heated in terms of the psychology of all this, then our, perhaps our true selves might be revealed. But that's, and the, point. that's the whole, that's the point yeah. thinking, that underneath it all, you can say you're not this, you're not that. And yet when you put under pressure, as you rightly say, but even under pressure, there are ways and means of handling yourself. And I I hate to bring football into it, but I will. It happens on the football field, doesn't it? There's a point where you you step on somebody's toes and you yelp and some people go in one direction and others go in another, Dave, don't they? Oh, yeah, definitely. I I know the scene that you're talking about Mm. as well, but I also saw that that also said a lot about Kate as a character because she's almost become programmed from blonde of what guys expect, um, which I think was a bit of a shock to that guy as well. And I, I know that we all kind of react differently to how we would normally react when we're shocked or scared. I, I saw that in a in a sense that he was kind of scared and it might have been a little bit of a, a reference to, to Me Too as well, that he doesn't want to be put into that situation where maybe the next day she might cry foul over what's happened when like, cause she's drunk at that time as well without giving too much away. So it's a bit of an awkward situation for him because I didn't, I did not view it like that, but I, I understand yeah. why you would. And again, it's, it, it's good that you can discuss something like this. It, it says that even though, you know, on the surface of it, here you've got a, a woman who, who just, by, by that age, you would think that she's got life figured out, but she hasn't figured it out at all. And and that, that's what this what True Things is is all about. Uh, what by the way, the title, uh, uh, where does that come from? There was a line in the movie about True Things, but I just wondered again. You know, we talked about titles last week. Uh, is it an appropriate title for a movie? I I, I wasn't convinced. I, I thought it was based on the original uh, uh, either story or novel or whatever that was published about it. So maybe that's where it comes from. Where it comes from. But again, whether that uh, it's not something that necessarily draws you in, you know, the, from a marketing point of view, let's put it that way. And I'm not sure that it, it really uh, speaks about what we're seeing. Dave, did you struggle with it or you didn't have a problem with the title? I didn't have a problem with the title. My friend suggested that it could have been called Kate and the Human Slug because um, <laughs> that was how she viewed Blonde. So, yeah. Yeah, fair enough. Okay, let's get a score from you, Dave. For truth, um, MA rated 102 minutes. I'm going to give this one 7.5 out of 10. Mm-hmm. Peter? Yes, I like the film too. Uh, the psychological obsession from a woman's perspective, 7 out of 10. And I'm giving it an 8 out of 10. So, yeah, we're, we're again, in similar territory for this one. Let's turn to now. I'm not sure that have you seen after every after ever happy? It's such a difficult title to get your head around, Peter, or not? Yes, I have. You have okay. Well, okay. It's this is a movie M rated 95 minutes. It, it seems to be a film a year in what is a melodramatic teen romance franchise, and we'll give it the after name. Okay, so uh, we're now onto the fourth. Now, unless you've actually followed the others, you might find it difficult to follow the threads because the action just starts with a presumption of character knowledge. 
And there's a there's a quick summation, isn't there, at the very beginning, which takes about two minutes. But we, we started with after in 2019, then after we collided. So I'd seen both of those. I didn't see after we fell, which came out in 2021. Did either of you? Yes. Yeah, I saw it, went, it at the drive-in, yep. Uh, it went to streaming. Ah, so... I don't understand that. So, well, maybe it was a COVID uh, time. Is that yes, it was. It, it opened in Australia and it was shown in other areas where there were no lockdowns, but I saw it at the drive-in during uh, one of the brief periods. Yep. Let me tell you, boys, uh, you you just are lost. If you, I mean, I you have your vague recollection, unless you've seen it, it just, there's just not enough of a, an ex- explanation at the very beginning. So anyway, the movie follows the tumultuous relationship between this American good girl called Tessa Young, played by Josephine Langford, and a moody Brit, Harden Scott, played by Hero Fines Tiffin. And this, the, the movies themselves are based upon a popular series of books written by New York Times bestselling author Anna Todd. But this one picks up where After We Fell left off, and that was at the London wedding of Harden's mother. Her mother's name is, his mother's name is Trish, played by Louise Lombard. Still coming to terms with the bombshell that Christian Vance, played by Stephen Moyer, is his father, Harden struggles with anger and addiction issues. So he's in a bad way. And he makes a series of decidedly questionable choices. Try as she does to get him through all of this, he manages to push Tessa away. So he stays in London which is where the marriage is taking place, and she returns to Seattle where she suffers a tragedy. That's when he realises he's been a selfish idiot and attempts to right his wrongs. Problem is she doesn't trust him and is not sure if she can save him without sacrificing herself. He, though, of course, is determined to win her back, even when she decides to move to New York. For him, it's about biding his time, choosing his moment to step back into her life. But even when he does, it is never going to be smooth sailing. Otherwise, you wouldn't have already had four elements or ingredients of after and more to come because there's a continuation again at the end of this one. So the writer, Sharon Soboyle, and the director, Castile Landon, they were both involved in the third film and they have returned for the fourth. The script, well, okay, all of the films have, have been the stuff of soap opera. And after he, after every, oh, this is so frustrating, after <laughs> ever happy is no different. Strictly lightweight fare and the constant flipping and flopping and the on again, off again and the continuous loop, boy, oh, boy, that wears thin pretty quickly. And I can't say the acting's top shelf either, mind you, both the leads have got their roles down pat by now. Uh, Josephine Langford plays sweet well enough and finds Tiffins. The, the pout, boy, oh, boy, that really grates, although it's clearly the way that his persona was created. Uh, undoubtedly there's an audience for this kind of pap because otherwise the producers wouldn't keep churning out the material that they do. I, I reckon the best way to enjoy this movie, Dave, is to simply let it wash over you without trying to be too critical because... Uh, you know, it's it, it's not going to win Academy Awards. It may win it may win uh, Teen Choice Awards, but that's about all it'll win. Uh, and familiarity uh, is is important because you can't really just pick this up and and get the most out of it, whatever there is in there, without 
understanding the the history of the characters. Your yeah, thought? these these movies. My relationship with these movies is like the relationship in True Things. I know it's bad for me. I know I'm going to feel degraded after I've I've been in it. But now I need to know where it ends. I'm invested in this now. I've seen oh. four films. I need to know how it ends. So it it is. It's it's absolute drivel. And I noticed in this film that things happen so quickly. It's yes. Like there's no warning that something's going to happen. This is a series that really would have been better off as a streaming service series like Gossip Girl or something like that. Why they had the idea of turning them into to movies, I'm I'm not really sure. I'm sure they've gone for that kind of Nicholas Sparks um, yeah. audience, but everything just happens so quickly. It's like, oh, we're happy together as a couple. Now we're apart again. Now we're back again. It's, oh, yeah, it's infuriating. But like I said, it's like a drug to me now. I'm so invested into it. I need to see where it ends. But it's a bad boy syndrome, isn't it? You know, good girls attracted to the bad boy. That, that That's yeah. kind of the, again, it, it's funny because we, we just talked about true things, same thing once more. That, uh, I mean, the parents obviously want in true things the 30-odd-year-old the to sort of settle down and, and find her equilibrium, but there's something there's something good about the bad. And, you know, th- th- does that brooding intensity, that th- the look of the, the hardened character, does that drive you nuts too or does it not? I mean, it's meant to, clearly. Yeah, a little bit. I see. I kind of like his character, though. I've liked his character ever since the first film, when the big twist happens in the first film, and um, he realizes that he likes her. I, yeah, it's almost like Twilight, where you have that Team Jacob and Team thing. I'm it probably is, it is a, Twilight's a perfect example of again a movie franchise which did well, and, and yeah. so it, to me, that's where it's capitalizing. You know. The, it's it's the the younger female brigade that I would imagine would be most enamoured with this sort of stuff. Peter, uh, yeah, hardly high philosophy, is it? <laughs> no, and if we're talking about psychological character development and so on, you'd be uh, uh, searching for it in these films because there really isn't. Um, it's a film that I call uh, straight to streaming cinema release. Yes. And, uh, and in fact, if you think of Happy Ever After and just flip it, then you'll get the title. And obviously um, there are two more films in the works uh, that oh, I know of. Oh, no. Are you serious? There's two more. Two yeah. more. One is a follow-up to uh, 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 After Ever Happy and one is a prequel, uh, I think, called Before. One of the books was called Before. So uh, this is going to be a never-ending saga for a younger audience. <laughs> uh, and uh, I, I must admit, I found the characters quite uninvolving and, and just, uh, uninteresting because they are not really properly fleshed out. They they turn on a, uh, on a, a particular issue so quickly and uh, obviously hero uh, fine tiffin is trying to emulate marlon brando and is not doing it particularly well <laughs> um and and I, I must say the the plot twists if you can call it that are either predictable or are so uh, so poorly done uh, and lead to very poor and few consequences i mean the whole thing is a mess i have to say and uh, as i say should have stayed and and dave you said it as a streaming or as a as a TV series, um, because it just goes on and on forever repetitively. Uh, I was not impressed at all. Oh, I don't. I don't agree with you. I think when when plot twists do happen, they are 
I don't think you can predict all of those. I, I actually thought that was, even though it, that, that flip-flopping drives you nuts because you know it's going to happen, but you can't predict the, the form that that will take, can you, Dave? That's where it frustrates me because, yeah, like the what you said here when she goes back to Seattle and gets bad news, there was no setup of that at all. That's it what was, I'm saying. And that, that's why yeah. I'm surprised that you said that, that that could be predicted. I don't think you can predict that. No, because it flip-flops so much that uh, yeah, it's predictable I'm in its unpredictability. Oh, <laughs> you're trying to tie us up in knots. and when <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I, In fact, I, the funny thing is I saw a play, which we might talk about shortly, which was exactly that, that drove me nuts because uh, – the language was too too smart by halves, and uh, yes. So, having said that, let's get a score from you after Ever Happy. Let's go for you first, Peter. Okay, uh, it's interesting to note the film was shot in Bulgaria, which seems to be a very appropriate place to uh, to first, shoot this film. It's the first. Thank you. It's the first. What's wrong with Bulgaria? Hang on. Are you, are you dissing Bulgaria now? Are you? <laughs> I'm just flip-flopping uh, all there my way are. through this. Thank you. Yeah, Josephine Langford said that this is the first time she's visited Bulgaria and she had a very nice hotel room where she could sort of look out over the vista. So she clearly uh, enjoyed being there. Now, you know, that's that's fair enough. I mean, uh, how hang nice. On, hang on. And are you saying to me you wouldn't date somebody, you know, as caring and considerate as the character she plays? Are we talking about film or real life? <laughs> I'm asking, I'm asking real, real life here, Peter. You're on the, the psycho psychologist's couch or the psychiatrist's couch. You, 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 you're revealing parts of yourself during this uh, this conversation. Oh, of course, all the time. I mean, that's all I do in my reviews, reveal okay. parts of myself. <laughs> and what are you giving it out of 10? I give this film two out of 10. Oh, my golly, wow. Okay, Dave, you're going to go higher than that, surely. Oh, not much higher. I'm giving it um, three out of ten. And now you've said Bulgaria. Well, Bulgaria is where Hostel was set. So if we could get the screenwriter and the director of this film to make those characters from Hostel, I'd be very happy. <laughs> well, I'm going to go four out of ten. So collectively, with three reviews, we've got a, a, a huge total, massive total of nine. Uh, <laughs> nine out of 30. Right, so, uh, folks, uh, if you're into it, uh, you know, prove us wrong. Watch it and and uh, tell us uh, that that you think this is a, a work of, of absolute genius. I doubt it. Okay, let's talk a little bit about a few plays that uh, we've seen. Actually, no, let's do one more movie uh, before we do that. Let's go to an IMAX film called Back from the Brink, which, I mean, I, I really like my IMAX movies. I, I can't think of a cinema experience that is like it, and I, I really enjoy, whether it be a documentary or whether it's a feature film, I, I love seeing it in that massive format with a big sound. Back from the brink, well, 45 minutes, as all these docos are, without intervention, half of all species could be pushed to the edge of extinction by the end of this century, and that's not gilding the lily. That That's the frightening fact that's presented by the narrator, Claire Danes, at the start of a quite remarkable documentary. Some awe-inspiring cinematography. That's one of the features, of course, of IMAX. It's 3D, this one. It charts the demise and recovery of three species. So the first of those, the Channel Island fox, size of a domestic cat, that can only be found on the islands off the Southern Californian coast. 
the fox population, the Channel Island fox population, plummeted to barely a thousand as they were preyed upon from the air by the golden eagle. The golden eagle was not native to the area. What was native to the area was the bald eagle. The bald eagle is a fish eater, which the golden eagle, the golden eagle needs its meat. And that's the problem that we had with these domestic cat-sized foxes. So the the reason the bald eagle uh, disappeared was that the pesticide DDT was dumped into the ocean and it killed the bald eagle's food source. So you've got a three-tier mission to try to save the fox from extinction. And the details of that are in Back from the Brink. Then part two, if you like, we move to Yunnan, which is a province in southwestern China, home to the golden monkey. Beautiful, beautiful creature. Dwells at a higher altitude than any other primate. Hunters reduced the population of these magnificent creatures, the animals, uh, which thrive on lichen during winter because its traditional food source isn't available because of the the height that they are, and it's just simply not not there. Uh, and it reduced the population to fewer than fifteen hundred of the golden monkey. And then you've got the efforts of an academic and his guide, and we should say also the Chinese government, turning the golden monkey's habitat into a nature reserve. And that's the second story. And then we go to Christmas Island, which of course is northwest of Australia, and you've got these tiny stowaways on a cargo ship that have well, decimated a paradise. And what I'm talking about here is, is I'd never heard of them, but they're called yellow crazy ants. And these ants have stowed away on a cargo ship and, and suddenly their number has grown to, wait for this, 15 billion. And when you've got 15 billion of anything, you can imagine it threatens the, the web of life where anybody else or anything else is trying to thrive. And well, survive in the first instance and thrive secondly. So, among those affected was the previously prolific red crab. And the, re- the importance of the red crab to the Christmas Islands is it fertilizes the soil. So, the solution here, or the attempted solution, was from biologists from Parks Australia. So, it's good because it's you know, homegrown and, and all of that stuff. So, we find out about that in Back from the Brink. I I was just thinking, if only it was that easy, Peter, to cut down the population of cane toads that were introduced into Australia in 1935. If you remember, they they were introduced to try to control agricultural pests, and uh, I I don't think that they'll ever be eliminated given how prolific they are. What did you think of Back from the Brink? Well, for me, I use Antarctica recently as a benchmark for a uh, a nicely made, well, uh, tongue-in-cheek to some extent narrated uh, documentary, which also had some very point, uh, you know, good points to make about the ecology and the environment. Unfortunately, uh, this film, uh, Back to the uh, Back from the Brink, doesn't live up uh, for me to that sort of benchmark. Yeah. Uh, uh, for a start, it, it, the narration is very prosaic, and even though it's factual and there's information, Claire Danes may not have necessarily been the best choice. She sounds a bit bored as she's uh, sort of narrating the film. Really? Secondly, I didn't. Okay, I did. I, I disagree. I thought she was really strong. I, I, I thought the 
it, she, she did a, she gave us insight. It was well told. It was clear. I found it inspiring. So it's interesting. I had a different take on her entirely. Keep going, please. It felt more like a lecture than it was uh, oh. a, 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 re- a real presentation. Uh, secondly, the Red Crabs story on um, the uh, Christmas Island has been dealt with before in an Australian documentary. Uh, and so I thought I'm watching something that I've already seen and I'm not necessarily learning anything particularly new. Uh, overall, uh, it's look, it's nicely shot. Uh, a benchmark for me is also whether 3D enhances a film uh, in IMAX or doesn't. In this case, the 3D had very little effect for me um, in enhancing the storyline. So overall, I was a bit disappointed by, um, even though the the film itself deals with an important issue about saving uh, uh, creatures, etc., that uh, might become extinct. Um, nevertheless, I don't think it did it that well. Oh, it's uh, yeah. I, I have a totally different take on it because I thought it was powerful. I thought it was affecting, and I thought the close-up cinematography of the animals and the insects is as wondrous as it is illuminating. I, I marvelled at what I was seeing, Dave. Yeah, I was the same. I was really impressed actually because I followed Sean Casey's career, the director. Um, I was a huge fan of his um, Storm Chasers TV yes. series, and of course, he went on to do Tornado Alley um, and Extreme Weather for IMAX. Um, so I love the fact that he's branched away from that now and he's gone out into nature documentaries because he's always been a documentary maker that's had a good eye for detail. The only thing I would have changed with this documentary was I'm not sure if having the crabs last was a great idea because the the fox was cute and fluffy, the monkey was beautiful, and then all of a sudden you had an animal that looked like it was going to bite my hand. Um, <laughs> I, I would have changed that around a little bit and maybe had them in the middle um, just so that it kind of left on one of the the nicer animals that you can kind of relate to more as a human. But I thought it was a great documentary, a great way to educate people. And I like the fact that it was a positive documentary. It was looking at endangered species, but it was looking at how humanity has brought them back from the brink, like the name suggests. So I really enjoyed that. It wasn't another doomsday documentary. It was more of a, this is how humanity can actually help animals. Yeah, look, the IMAX experience, I think, is unparalleled. And I liked dividing the narrative into the three components. It worked very well for me. And uh, it leaves you with the hope that with the proper and timely intervention that was responsible for bringing these three creatures back from the brink, uh, endangered and at-risk species do stand a chance. So I, I reckon... Uh, it's aimed at, uh, I went to the education screening before the main one and because the main one was full and I was very grateful that I could go along. And they say it's aimed at year, I think it was, they said year four level and above. And I, I would I would reckon that uh, this is something that could appeal to young youngsters and uh, can inspire them. So let's get a score out of 10 from you. Back from the brink, Dave. Um, I'm going to give this one eight out of 10. Mm-hmm. I agree. I'm giving it an eight. And Peter? Uh, it certainly has an educational perspective, no denying that, but uh, I, I just felt it was more ho-hum as a, as a documentary. I would have liked something a bit sharper, so I give it six out of ten. Let me briefly talk to you about something that's a lot of fun. Freaky Friday on Theatrical is the producer at Chapel Off Chapel in Paran, a widow with a 16-year-old daughter and a 10-year-old son who prides herself on her scrupulous control and attention to detail is getting married the next day. 
and her daughter is hardly enamoured by the idea, butts heads with her, and then everything changes when magically they switch bodies and have to step into each other's shoes. Now, you boys would have seen the Disney, there's been a number of Disney movies based on a novel by Mary Rogers and the, the Disney films of 1976, 95 and 2003. This is a delightful family musical. It's clever, it's funny, it's joyous, it's uplifting. And the two leads here, Lila de Grazia and Stephanie Powell, are sensational. Powerful, dynamic vocals. They really are electrifying. And this sounds twee, but I equate de Grazia's singing to liquid gold. She's so fluid and ear-pleasing. What a fine she is. I hope she goes on and does some absolutely stellar mainstream musicals because she's so darn good. And Powell as well excites with her tone and delivery. The facial expressions that she has are priceless as this sort of adult playing a kid. Thomas Martin really comes into his own with significant heavy lifting as the, if you like, love interest of the younger of the two in the second act. I mean, he's got purity of sound as well. And Michael Gray is another winner. He plays three roles, including the good-natured fiancé of the mother about to get married. 17 in the cast, glorious in harmony. They make the most of the, the music and the lyrics. So there's a lot to like about Freaky Friday, which is on until the 18th of September. So you've got a little bit of time to see it. Please do see it, folks. It is worth a look. Jason Bovet's lighting as well, a real feature. We are out of time, boys. Peter, thank you very much indeed for yours. Thank you. And Dave Griffiths, we are going to do it all again in uh, but seven days. And there's always great movies and shows. Look out for them. There's a lot of things happening in Melbourne, and we're going to be scared in the not-too-distant future because we're going to see ghost stories at the Athenaeum. So if you're into being scared and don't mind it, why not buy your tickets now? We'll catch you next week on First on Film and Entertainment. Mm -hmm.